Hello, Stargazers. Welcome to 7th House Astrology. I am your host, Sandra Misek. For those of you who are just joining me, well, welcome. I'm very glad that you found my podcast uh, today. What we do on 7th House Astrology is that I either take a particular aspect or a planet or in this case, from both last week as well as this week, I also take a topic and I explore it through the lens of Sinistry Astrology. Normally, at the end of my episode, I come to either one of two segments, which is either what makes uh, relationships tick, or also what do we learn from this particular aspect, or what do we learn from this particular topic um, when we apply sinistry astrology to it, and what can we take with us when it comes to relationships. For those of you who are still joining me, well, welcome still. I'm glad that my podcast is giving you a sense of inspiration and also that it's a continual source of information for you. Now, Stargazers, I had noticed when listening to last week's episode that I made a little bit of a blunder. So just like with last week, we are continuing on with Am I Marriage Material? And basically determining marriage or the signs of two people uh, really having a promising future when it comes to marriage, when it comes down to the synastry chart. But uh, I do have to correct one thing um, because, like I said, I did make a blunder. I thought I understood applying versus separating aspects rather well last week. Turned out I really could have used more research, unfortunately. So within that particular segment of the episode where I was discussing about Venus and Mars, and I came up to an interesting conclusion that, you know, having Venus and Mars situated in Aries and Leo would be rather great, as opposed to like, say, Leo and Sagittarius or Aries and Sagittarius because of, you know, the similarities between the signs and also the the fulfilling of commitment. While there was a lot of a, a big, interesting discussion going on and a lot of interesting theories going on within there, um, it was not even close and really not worth a cigar nor a astrological award for that matter. So I thought I would begin part two because, um, you know, advancedastrology.com had actually, they made a great point when it came to applying versus separating when it came to Venus and Mars. I thought I would cover that first and then, move on forward to the houses as well as the technicalities. And I thought it would be perfect to also cover applying versus separating since that is also a technicality. And that's what we're covering this week, the technicalities as well as the houses that make uh, marriage come true within the, uh, the composite chart. So when it c- comes to applying versus separating, Applying versus separating has nothing really to do with the planets being in a particular sign. Uh, that was what I had thought, and I, I think I also remembered reading that it has nothing to do with compatibility of the signs and completely, like I said, misread it and mis, misinterpreted it. So what it really has to deal with is it's really technicality when it comes down to the position of two different planets 
particularly when it comes down to a faster moving planet, and we all have those faster moving planets in our charts, you know, versus a slower moving planet. Like if a fast moving planet should come up to a slow moving planet, what exactly happens within that chart? Usually applying versus separating is usually discussed within the roles of the birth chart as well as I could see it being used within transits or within any branch of predictive astrology. Mainly because applying aspects are usually something that it's kind of like a waning to full moon where you feel a particular form of energy very strongly. And again, we'll get right into why that is in just one moment. But then there's also the separating aspects where you don't feel it. It's kind of like the waning moon where you don't feel the energy as intensely. And really the biggest reason for it is that, as mentioned earlier, faster moving. So when it comes to applying, the faster moving planet is coming towards a slower moving planet. And in the case, we'll just make this example. Um, so I recently discovered, rediscovered actually secretary over this last week while I was doing research and had rekindled my admiration for Mr. James Spader, which I, I've had an admiration for him since I was 17. But I thought I would actually, uh, since I had visited his, his chart uh, out of just curiosity of what, where everything was placed and how and where uh, his ascendant happens to be, which is, you know, sign his ascendant happens to be and everything. I thought I would do a little bit of an example with like, say, if James Spader, if I should have had a relationship with James Spader. Now, again, kind of like with Leah Schreiber last week, a lot of wishful thinking, but hang in there with me. So when it comes to applying, I would say an example with a faster moving planet is I noticed that with Mr. Spader's chart, Mr. Spader's Pluto placement is right. It's like conjunct my Venus placement in my chart. We're both at seven, seven degrees Virgo. If I were to say back up my Venus placement to where it is like three degrees Virgo. So still um, Pluto and Venus are still conjunct. The reason why I'm backing up to three degrees Virgo is that three degrees Virgo indicates that Venus, which is a slower moving planet. So Venus takes about like a week and a half to move through each house, whereas Pluto is the slowest planet out of all the 10 planets in astrology. Pluto takes like 17 years to move even from one house to another, which is to me, incredible. It's probably why it is considered to be one of the most generational of generational planets represented because it really does represent 17 years. So it does represent a generation in full. And that's why a lot of um, Pluto placements are measured in generational terms, or it's usually referred to in both generational terms. So what a generation would be experiencing particularly when it comes to a sign or where Pluto is placed in the astrology wheel and what to expect when it comes to attitudes of that generation. A uh, big example for me is Pluto conjunct Uranus is usually very representative of the Gen Xer generation, 
what to expect from the Gen Xers is that they have, they gain power or they expect to gain power by having very, very controversial views and possibly very out of this world type of views. They could be political views. They could be socio-political views. They could just be personal philosophies that are just like really very controversial. But again, um, like I said, with, with Pluto really marks a generation when it comes to its placement. But anyway, if I were to back up my Venus placement up to three degrees Virgo, it would really emphasize the applying aspect because that means Venus being the faster moving of the plants is just starting to approach Mr. Spader's Pluto placement. And what happens when it comes down to applying aspects is that the faster moving planet it's so according to drstandley.com, the faster moving planet is being molded by the slower moving planet. And what that means is that the slower moving planet takes precedence. So if, again, if, um, you know, like when we're looking at this aspect right in this situation, I would say within this relationship, his Pluto placement would take precedence in the relationship and it would be more dominated by a sense of power and possibly that sense of power would be by him in that relationship. Um, within a transit, a lot of people would feel that Pluto energy, that Plutonian energy very strongly when it comes to this applying aspect. And again, it would be in relation to power and also possibly transformation as well too. It depends how the person kind of approaches the Pluto placement. And also in a relationship such as the one with um, Mr. Spader, it would depend on whether or not um, we would both respect each other's sense of power or of duty or of authority I, I wouldn't say duty, but more of authority. You know, if we respect each other's authority, we respect each other's sense of power. It could also be a great sense of transformation that could come to the relationship as well. So when it comes down to the um, transits or when it comes to natal charts as well, when it comes to applying, applying aspects can have a very intense energy of things coming to fruition. This is, I think, especially true with uh, transits where you can just feel something happening. It might not have happened yet, but you can just feel like the energy is in the air, just very static. Um, it's like static electricity that's in the air. It's very palpable. You can really feel it. And that's definitely very true when you have an applying aspect again with a slower moving planet um, versus a faster moving planet. Now, again, the faster moving planets are um, usually the sun, moon, Mercury, Venus. I would also say would come up to about Mars. I'd say Mars actually too is a very slow moving planet. It takes about like two weeks for Mars to move from one house to another. So Mars is kind of like that borderline. Well, it's a borderline um you know, personal planet. I think it's also a borderline planet when it comes to speed as well, because that's where we see with Mars, where the planets really start to slow down when it comes to their orb. 
And then everything after Mars, all the generational planets are definitely slower moving planets as well, too. So again, it's that faster moving planet coming up to a very slow moving planet. And, you know, it's usually within a couple degrees. This can also happen, like, say, with a opposition. This could happen with a trine. It can happen with all aspects where it just... That faster moving planet just coming up. It's like, you know, it's just starting to begin its way into one house while that slower moving, moving planet can be established in the opposite house or can be established in the house that's squared to the faster moving planet or the house that's trined or um, the placement that is also sextiled to that slower moving planet as well. Now, in contrast, there is separating, and separating, what that really means, again, is, like I said, just the opposite to applying. So separating is basically the faster-moving planet is moving away from the slower-moving planet in the chart. And again, like I'd mentioned, it, within a transit, whereas the applying aspect is like, it's so palpable, something's going to happen, or I can feel this energy in the air is palpable. The separating influence would be, I'm no longer, the intensity is no longer feeling it. You know, instead of it being palpable, it's just, it's absolutely has lessened. And I, I like to liken it to the waning moon because, you know, once we get to the full moon, the full moon is at its most intense, it's at its most powerful. And then once the moon starts to wane, the effects of the full moon start to wane with it as well, too. The same thing with a separating aspect. And um, with the separating aspect, when it comes, it's not just, again, within transits, uh, we can see this within natal charts as well. It's just the effect of the two planets are just not as strong. And also the influence between the faster moving planet and the slower moving planet, the slower moving planet doesn't have as much influence. So in the case of, um, and I'll take this in you know, kind of, I know I'm kind of taking a sinister example to a general example, but taking the sinister example of Mr. Spader and myself, if say Venus should be, you know, instead of being seven degrees in Virgo, like say that my Venus placement should be 13 degrees in Virgo and Mr. Spader's Pluto placement stays pretty stubbornly strong at seven degrees Pluto. That would be an example of a separating aspect in the, in the regard that that uh, Venus placement is moving on out. And what that would indicate is that Pluto's powerful influence doesn't really have much effect or sway when it comes to my affection to Mr. Spader or when it comes to my admiration to Mr. Spader as well, too. Also, issues of transformation or change would not be as strong as when we get to the applying aspect of it. The same thing is happening within a natal chart um, where, again, say that there's a, you know, the moon is, is you know, in the applying aspect, it's coming up towards um, Saturn in the natal placement where that would kind of make somebody more devoted and would make somebody very, or, you know, very um, committed towards organization. 
and towards remaining dedicated, especially towards a career goal or just to one's family or just um, in a station in society. The separating aspects of the moon should have moved a couple degrees away from Saturn. Again, Saturn's influence. So we would have more um, of a person who might have more of that lunar influence as opposed to just Saturn's influence entirely. Again, um, with advancedastrology.com, I think the reason why they had mentioned applying versus separating, especially when it comes to Venus and Mars, and they'd mentioned this with all the planets in general within a sinistry chart, is that, as you can guess, applying actually indicates a more, like a stronger relationship when it comes down to the two planets that are involved, as opposed to where separating, it's more of a, a relationship that's fizzling out. And again, um, this is due to the fact that the orbs of the planets are either very strong or very weak as well, too. In the regard to uh, Venus and Mars, if Venus should be approaching Mars, the sexual attraction when it comes to the two partners involved is very high. The love for that sexual attraction is also very high. And really, it's a placement where two people can really hit it off. And again, um, it's that sort of placement where you would have respect along with the sex, which is very ideal for two people who are looking to get married. Unlike where with a separating aspect, the attraction or the sexual attraction and also the loving attraction would be very misplaced within that chart. Um, you know, sex and love would probably be two different and distant sort of energies um, due to that chart and due to the two people involved. And um, it just would not be as, as strong as with the applying aspect there. So hopefully, so once again, I am very sorry, Stargazers, for the blunder. Again, I'm going to try to make sure that my blunders are kept an all-time minimum on my podcast. Hopefully that clarifies things a little bit more than what I had tried to explain last week uh, when it comes down to applying and separating. So in getting to the houses that make up marriage material... So again, I'll do what I did last week, which is I will give you my opinion um, and what I see when it comes to charts, but then I will also revisit advancedastrology.com and give you their opinion um, since they had given a lot of interesting insights as well too. And every astrologer seems to give very similar insights at you know to advancedastrology.com, so We'll definitely explore what they have to say as well, too. But um, what I just did is I broke up that list that I came down with last week when it comes to what makes successful marriages. And again, um, those points were desire to be united or commitment. Uh, Sam Rockwell's viewpoint that good sex is really just the, the key to any great relationship. With that, I also lumped it with baby. There's good communication and listening as well as honesty and just really exploring which houses uh, really kind of stood out to me with these uh, factors of what makes a successful marriage. So for the first point, 
that I had um, uncovered, which is a desire to be united or commitment. The first thing that kind of stood out to me and that screamed out to me was the seventh house. In fact, I think I was thinking of the seventh house when I had come up with a desire to be united. And it it makes sense, you know, um, when you make a, so marriage, again, very different from a dating relationship, Um, not only different in the regard that you're making a huge commitment in front of witnesses and a huge commitment either in front of God or in front of you know, if you're doing a hand fasting, it's usually, I think it's a year in which the hand fast lasts, but sometimes, um, being a pagan ritual could be in front of goddess and God that you make this commitment to, um, in other circles, it just could be a higher being either way, even though you're making a huge commitment, again, marriage is very different in the regard that you're also, you're, you're shifting your thinking from you being very egocentric and you centric and really shifting your thinking towards where you're, you're actually considering your partner for a change. And, um, you're not only, you know, you can consider yourself within the relationship, but you're really also, you're considering your partner and also, um, shifting to where you're considering a family as well too. So you're considering, other points of view and other people as well too. And for me, the desire to be united and that commitment, that seventh house aspect is just, I I think that that just really epitomizes marriages big time. You know, again, um, when we visit the seventh house, it's really mainly because, you know, again, we have a rulership with, with Venus. So according to John Townley, All personal planets that come to this house are usually focused on an equilibrium or on um, just really making sure the relationship is fair as well as just that, you know, making sure that both persons get a say, um, making sure that um, everybody in the, well, I'd say that both persons in the relationship get a say, that fair, that uh, viewpoints are fairly represented and that, you know, everyone is really well and considered. Um, usually planets within the seventh house kind of embody the equilibrium of Libra, which is the sign that rules this house. But also, I really feel that any personal planets that come into the seventh house takes on that Libra quality of that person really desires a relationship and a commitment with someone else, or they desire to be with someone else. So again, the focus would be on making sure that that not only the person loves that individual who has a personal planet in the seventh house, but that the other person stays in the relationship as well. And of course, the person who has any sort of personal planets, or if both people have personal planets in the seventh house, their focus is on really maintaining and building on the relationship as opposed to just, you know, having a relationship and then having it fizzle, which some houses can indicate as well too. The planets, as I mentioned earlier, that are really the best for this house are the personal planets. So there's the sun, the moon, and Venus predominantly. Uh, Mars, unfortunately, Mars and Jupiter, the other two planets that, you know, so Mars being another personal planet, 
I would say that would be an exception. It would not be a good placement for Mars or seventh house would not be a good placement for Mars. And Jupiter would also not be a good placement um, in the seventh house. Um, the two reasons being is that uh, with, uh, with Mars, Mars has such a pure primal energy and it's either you do or you don't. I mean, like I said, if Mars is solely in the seventh house, um, really it's a do or you don't sort of energy. And on top of being a do or you don't energy, it's pure primal energy, particularly in relationships. It's towards sex. It's also a very impulsive planet. So what I usually see is, you know, where a relationship could form or where a relationship would be you know, wanting to be kindled by the other person, the Mars person would be very impatient if sexual needs are not being met and also being impatient as well as impulsive, darting from one lover to another is what I usually see uh, with that placement in the seventh house. With Jupiter, um, Jupiter is kind of tricky because while Jupiter can foster focusing on other people, Jupiter can also foster in the seventh house a sense of this overall sense of expansiveness to where it can lead from, well, why am I being monogamous, monogamous to one partner when I can be really dedicated to lots of partners? So again, extramarital affairs or any sort of affairs I feel would be indicated with Jupiter in the, the seventh house. But otherwise, I would say um, Venus, especially Venus conjunct the moon or, uh, within the seventh house would be very key and very strong. Um, Venus, obviously, because it is its actual, it's in its natural place, being in the seventh house and being within Libra. And Venus is also very geared towards making sure that love and affection are being met and that that whole sense of equilibrium and appreciating one's partner is being met uh, with the moon. Moon um, Venus Moon relationships, according to Townley, are the most attractive, mainly because um, Venus is uh, again preoccupied with aesthetics. Moon person is very receptive to those aesthetics as well. But I would say within the seventh house, um, whereas the Venus person is giving a lot of love. And trying to maintain the relationship, the moon person is very receptive to that love and willing to give it back. So it's definitely a relationship where uh, there's a lot of love going on as well. I feel Venus conjunct the moon between two partners charts would be that the like the most line hook and sinker when it comes to a very strong marriage. Because um, I, I just feel like that's like at its strongest. I think it's even stronger than Venus trined or Venus sextiled the, the other person's moon. And um, so basically what that would represent is I think it'd be even stronger than Venus in the seventh house, uh, basically sextiled uh, the moon, someone else's moon in the fifth house or someone else's moon in the ninth house. And I think um, the, the conjunction would be even stronger than a trine, which is, again, the moon would be found in a similar sign that has the same element to it. 
so the other good aspect or the other very strong aspect that we had visited last week that I felt is very um, predominant is that of Sam Rockwell's idea that good sex unites all relationships, which I think can and cannot be true. But in looking at Sam Rockwell's point of view a little bit more, um, you know, good sex is important when it comes to marriages. In fact, um, sex, I feel, is one of the reigning factors that kind of keeps, it's kind of like the glue um, when it comes to marriages. Um, One of the glue, one of the sources of glue that comes to marriages. I think commitment is another sense of glue that comes to marriages as well, too. But uh, yeah, if someone is not having a really great sex life or if the sex between both partners is kind of lacking, it does put a strain on the relationship. But again, going with Sam Rockwell's theory, what kind of stood out to me, so I know this is going to cause a bit of a debate with other astrologers and, you know, I can see why. Because um, there was a huge debate between the fifth house and the eighth house with me. And um, along with the fifth or the eighth house, I think Chris Brennan, actually I know Chris Brennan's podcast or Chris Brennan on the, on the astrology podcast, host of that, had mentioned that when it comes down to sexuality and astrology, it's really hard to fit sexuality into astrology because there are just so many, it seems like there's so many components that underlie the energy of the chart. And we also have some situations like the fifth house and the eighth house where they seem like very opposite energies um, that are predominant in the chart and um, yet both represent sexuality in one shape or form or another. But I came to the conclusion for this episode that the fifth house um, and relations in the fifth house would be considered when it comes to good sex, mainly because with good sex, there also comes another aspect that's really very, very much discussed within marriages. And that's also very important within marriages. And that is the aspect of baby, you know, having a baby. And, uh, well, fifth house is the house of not only creativity, but also the house of relations with children as well as children and, you know, and creation of, um, of a baby as well too. So definitely fifth house interplay and dynamics would be very important. I also thought, you know, unlike the eighth house where the eighth house is, you know, again, sex is all about the French concept of la petite mort, uh, which is a little death, you know, so with sex comes the death of one aspect of the self, um, with, you know, discussions of the eighth house with the death of one aspect of the self comes a rebirth of another aspect of yourself. I kind of feel that with the eighth house in, you know, dealing with transformation in dealing with learning from your past um, in dealing with, you know, sexuality being like really something that's very penetrating and deep, and that's revealing a lot of depth from the soul. I kind of felt like that's really rather in and of itself, forgive my lack of a better term, but I felt that was rather a little too deep uh, when it came down to marriages. 
I feel that with marriages, it's not just about, you know, uncovering the truth, uncovering every, everybody's hydras and uncovering your own hydra and really having a, you know, a very deep, deep relationship. I think, you know, um, while relationships can be deep when it, or while marriages can be deep, I feel like there's a sense of lightheartedness that's in the couple. Otherwise, I mean, if it's, if it's really, if there's a relationship that's just all about depth and nothing else, it, that depth can kind of suck the air out of the room, so to speak. So, you know, while some interplays and some dynamics may come into factor with the eighth house, I feel like the fifth house is the better house to gauge good sex in the relationship, uh, whether that leads to marriage, um, as well as, like I said, because, you know, half of it promotes baby. I think the fifth house as well is, you know, fifth house, again, ignites passion, or that's where passion is igniting. That's where both partners still have a sense of fun um, and a sense of play involved in, um, when it comes down to it. And I know when it comes to the sex aspect of marriages, it's usually with the more that it's fun and playful for both partners and agreeable for both partners, the more that it helps to unite and hold the relationship together, as opposed to if it's just really super deep and sometimes, like I said, kind of dark, maybe not so much. But um, I also thought with the fifth house as well, too, not only is it fun, but also there is that aspect in the fifth house where you can still respect each other. You know, you can respect each other in the eighth house, sure, with um, sexuality, but I feel in the fifth house, you can still have that sense of fun and play where you can still respect each other. You can still love each other at the end, which I find to be also extremely important when it comes to marriages. Now, again, uh, when it comes to the fifth house, I really think that the sun, moon, and Venus are really the best planets in that house all the way around and that are really conducive to marriage and a relationship. Uh, sun and moon, you know, sun would really encourage, you know, the act of sex and encourage um, passion and spontaneity and fun and play. The moon person would, you know, somebody has a moon in that uh, house, or if both people have the moon in that house, it would encourage receptivity um, to play, but also to, you know, the passion that is igniting between both people. And then, of course, Venus is, you know, igniting a sense of romance as well, too. Um, again, Mars, unfortunately, is kind of excluded out of this house because, again, with Mars, I see a lot of the sex coming out. Kind of like with the seventh house, there's a lot of sex and pure primal energy when it comes to sex in that house. And um, again, if it's sex is not, if sex is not forthcoming or if it's not specified to that specific individual's needs, that person moves on. And, you know, they spontaneously move on or they impulsively move on, which is not very conducive to relationships, but especially towards marriage. Uh, Jupiter, unfortunately, is excluded from the fifth house as well, too. I would just be very wary with Jupiter because, um, like, again, at, again, being the tricky planet that it can be where, again, it can foster really great things. 
I feel in the fifth house, it can be why, you know, can it, the expansive nature can lead towards why should I just be committed to one person when I can have sex with many? And again, I feel like that's not very conducive towards marriage at all when it comes down to this house. So the other aspects were good communication and listening and honesty. And I'm going to be honest with you, stargazers. When I covered the third and the eight, the ninth houses in um, respective episodes, I thought with the third and the ninth houses, knowing that they dealt with intellectualism, expansiveness of the mind, um, communication and listening, I thought it would just deal with intellectual relationships and that was it. And actually, when I kind of saw good communication and listening and honesty as key hallmarks for a great marriage, I was really, I was very excited for the third and the fifth house. It's like, yay, there's an application for the third and the fifth house, or not, sorry, not the third and the fifth house, the third and the ninth house, pardon me. So yeah, I was very excited for the third and the ninth houses because I, again, I didn't find as many applications when I had covered those two houses in the episode with good communication and listening. Um, you know, third obviously represents communication. Ninth house represents listening. I would say planets, um, when it comes to marriages, I would not say having, um, so planets either being either in the third or the ninth house would be best or, um, trined the ninth house or the third house or sextile the ninth house or the third house. Um, you know, I would really be careful when it comes to planets that are positioned in both partners, third and ninth houses, knowing that the third and the ninth also form an opposition and oppositions can be mildly annoying in deal dealing with. I think the biggest key commitment is finding the energies of the planets that are in opposition and finding their common ground. And sometimes that can be rather, that can be rather hard for a couple to navigate as well too. But um, really when it comes to good communication and listening and honesty, I feel like you can't get any better than Mercury in either house. I feel like Mercury definitely was screaming at me with this one. Um, definitely are just kind of raising, really raising its hand, being very eager to be in the spotlight. Mercury in um, either position or either house is really very beneficial. I also find Mercury in good relations, so soft aspect or even conjunction to the moon is really conducive and really wonderful when it comes to communication and listening uh, with uh, the Mercury aspect, knowing that Mercury oriented people or people of a placement in Mercury, either in the third or the ninth houses are really great with communication and really great with listening. However, they expect their partner to be equally great with communication and listening. And that's where the moon person, the person has their moon position in either the third um, house or in soft aspects to this other, the other person's Mercury position that's where it come in very handy because um, moon um, people would be very receptive and listen, you know, inclined to listening to the Mercury person and what they are presenting when it comes to improving the relationship. Now, because Jupiter, poor Jupiter has been excluded from seventh and ninth houses 
or not seventh, sorry, seventh and fifth houses. I'm getting my houses all mixed up tonight. I am so sorry, stargazers. Um, so since Jupiter's been excluded from the fifth and the seventh houses, I'm going to give it a little bit of a break here and actually say that Jupiter would be a good placement in either, well, particularly in the ninth house because that's its natural placement, but also in the third house as well. And I think, you know, Jupiter conjunct, uh, Mercury would also be very beneficial for not only the Jupiter person being very receptive to what the Mercury person has to give, but also with the expansive mindset, you know, kind of giving more solutions to the issues that the Mercury person might be providing. The Jupiter person would also be willing to give more insight um, if there are concerns that the Mercury person is raising um, as well, too. So I think that that would, that would definitely be very, a winning combination as well, too. And I also think that Jupiter also in a soft, um, position. So either trined or sextile would also be very good as well, too, to the other person's Mercury placement. And when it comes down to honesty, I'm sorry, you cannot get any more honest than Mercury in the third house or Mercury in the ninth house. It's just, just that plain and simple. And Mercury, I feel out of all the planets is like the most brutal and honest, you know, brutally honest of all the planets that there can be. I think the second, that the second runner up would probably be, I'd say there's a tie between Pluto. There'd be Pluto and then there'd be Saturn as well too. Saturn can be pretty brutal in its honesty. Um, unfortunately, brutal in a very like kind of like negative lesson sort of way, you know, that there's a lesson to be had. And then Pluto, um, very kind of brutal as well in the regard that it also deals with um, power trips and um, power plays as well too. But I'd say Mercury is like the the most brutally honest, but yet also the most, um, because, uh, communication and listening and fostering relationships is part of that planet. I'd say with Mercury, that's like the, the most honest, but it means well, you know, it's energy, it's, it's planetary energy means well when it's, when it's being honest. All right, stargazers. So like I said, it's not just up to me when it comes down to marriages. Like advancedastrology.com had actually given a couple of, you know, angles as well as um, houses that are really very strong uh, within marriages. But one thing that they had mentioned what that I had not thought of was that if your personal, so if um, both you and your partner or you or your partner should have personal planets that fall on the ascendant. So, you know, big example of this was Kira Sedgwick's Venus placement landed right on the ascendant of Kevin Bacon's, you know, Kevin Bacon's chart. And that it, they say that is particularly wonderful for marriage. I think, you know, because the ascendant is definitely that outward most part of you in your chart. It deals with your persona and then you, like, your first house deals with yourself that you're projecting out into the world. I would say any sort of personal planets that do fall in the ascendant is really um, anything that is felt within 
So the person who has the planet on the, you know, this person whose planet lands on the ascendant of the other person, they kind of ignite a sense of love to the other, to the ascendant person. The ascendant person in turn can't help but radiate that outward into the world. So this is definitely a situation where the love would spread out into the world and other people, it's not just between two partners, other people would realize the love that's extending. Also, the ascendant is a really very powerful placement when it comes to your natal chart and when it comes to two people's charts, when it comes to the composite chart or the synastry chart. And uh, basically with advancedastrology.com, they've mentioned particularly the sun, moon, or Venus. If those planets are on the ascendant, really great for, for marriage. And it makes sense. The sun person would actually encourage the ascendant person in their love or their affection uh, for that person or just encourage love and affection. Lunar person would be very receptive to that person's facade or their persona. And then the Venus person would obviously encourage love and affection as well too. And the Venus person would be very, it's also possible because the Venus person's Venus is right on a very public aspect of the other person's chart. They'd be very open towards their affection um, for the, for their partner. As I had mentioned, the um, advancedastrology.com also mentions the seventh house being very prominent. They mentioned something else that was very interesting. Um, having planets in either the first and the seventh houses, but also, you know, um, even if you don't have planets in the first and seventh houses, but if both partners don't have a, a sort of planetary alignment in there, actually gauging the first house ruler and the seventh house ruler and if the first if the planet of both so um what i mean by first and seventh house rulers is that your first house is ruled by a particular sign which is ruled by a particular planet and the same with the seventh house now if the rulers of both of these houses like that the the um the rulers being the planets and the other person's chart is actually compatible with the sign of the um, first and seventh houses of the other person's chart that also apparently could indicate a sense of strong united, a, a strong united front between both partners as well as a marriage, which I thought was very interesting. So to take an example, if somebody has basically Scorpio in their first house and then Taurus in their seventh house, the planets that we'd want to check for the other person's um, chart is to make sure that the, the Mars and Pluto placements are actually really well placed to that person's Scorpio's first house. And we'd also want to check to see if that the other person's Venus placement is also well aspected to the Taurus seventh house because um, Scorpio rules both uh, Pluto as well as Mars and then Taurus rules Venus as well too. 
And then you want to gauge the same thing with the first and seventh houses with the other partner as well, too. Um, in fact, I would also even go so far as to say if the other partner has a first and seventh house that's actually compatible with the other person's first and seventh house, that would also be very promising for um, a marriage as well, too. This is one aspect that actually expanded my mind, Stargazers, and it was just very, very interesting. So now, nowadays, I think what I'll be doing is taking a look at everyone's first and seventh houses when I look at their charts as well, too. It's, uh, it was just very, a very uh, enlightening insight there as well, too. Um, and again, it's, uh, like I said, just, just very interesting. I would never have thought of that. And then the last point that advancedastrology.com had mentioned is that it's basically dealing with an asteroid with the personal planets. So an asteroid in regards to the sun, moon, Venus, they also mentioned lunar nodes, the ascendant or descendant, and that asteroid would be Juno. So Juno, rep- so Juno basically is named after the Roman goddess who is basically the equivalent of Hera. So the great, so Juno and Hera, they were both really responsible for marriage. So again, this asteroid I think is very fittingly named uh, when it comes down to Juno. But Juno is basically that asteroid that represents what we really value when it comes down to marriage. Um, And what I found out with my own um, discoveries with Juno in my own personal natal chart is that sometimes with Juno, it's a little, it goes a little bit deeper and it's what you don't really necessarily expect um, when it comes down to comparing it to your Venus placement. And the biggest reason for that is what um, many astrologers say that while your Venus placement is basically the outer facade of how you love. So Venus can be representative of like how you flirt or um, the first impressions that you might have of somebody or what you think you might like within a relationship. You know, there's definite considerations in what you would like in a relationship. Juno actually reveals the possible unconscious sides that you wouldn't consider or the sides that you would not really necessarily consider, but that are really deep inside of you. So for instance, my Venus placement is in Virgo. I would think that somebody being a gentleman and, you know, kind of having their, you know, minding their manners and uh, really, you know, making sure that they're not making crude or lewd statements on the first date and that they're, they're kind of um, upholding a social order of things. That's kind of, um, it's, it's enlightening um, and kind of in line to what I usually strive for and what I would usually like in a relationship. But then uh, when I saw that my Juno placement was in Taurus, I can't say that there was an opposition or contradiction because um, Taurus and Virgo usually are, you know, they're the same element. They're trying each other. But Juno and Taurus usually means that uh, financials and stability are also really very important when it comes to marriages and relationships 
uh, particularly with marriages. And uh, that really, I really never thought of that. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that could be like an unconscious consideration for me, but I really don't consciously think of liking somebody because of their financial status. Or, you know, I might be, you know, unconsciously, of course, I could be looking for stability. Um, that would, that would be a given, but, um, compared to somebody acting like a complete gentleman or, um, you know, supporting a wonderful gentleman in life, um, I never really thought of the other considerations with Juno. So keep in mind with Juno, it's kind of like the, the deeper aspects of you as well. But uh, when it comes to Juno in relation, so if Juno should either be, so Juno's like really greatest revelations come like when they, when it is conjunct the sun, the moon, Venus, sometimes Mars are there. Sometimes are, you know, there's some um, astrologers that mention Mars as well too, but um, it's very, it becomes even more revelatory because um, that really represents like it really puts light and sheds light onto other priorities that you would want in the relationship. So like, for example, the sun in conjunction with Juno would represent, you know, wh- wherever the sun's position is in that, in that particular sign, along with Juno's sign, it would represent like really, what more you would want to consider. I think um, it also matters pertaining to your anchor or pertaining to your outward self would also be very key and crucial. So again, like say if my son were in Taurus, for instance, and it were conjunct Juno, the having lots of stability, having a great home, um, willing to have a family, would be very important on top of somebody who's also financially stable or financially well off as well too. With the moon, um, Juno's relation with the moon would be again, what in the inner aspects that would be very important. So again, within Taurus, the inner aspects being that um, you would just want love to be abundant and you'd want a close form of love, um, that would also be very important with Juno as well too. Venus is the same. Um, Venus actually would represent, you know, affection and, you know, love and affection, you know, and what would be very important. I think with Venus, it would be very revelatory if you had that in conjunction with Juno, because that would really um, help you to understand what's really very important when it comes to relationships as well as to marriages for you, uh, because that's representative of definitely your affection as well, you know, how much affection you like and also what you value when it comes to love as well too, uh, within that regard. Now, when um, the lunar nodes are mentioned, lunar nodes usually indicate, so anything hitting the lunar, like the north node particularly, that usually indicates a karmic sort of relationship. So a relationship that feels like it was meant to be Juno can really heighten that as well too. Not only can Juno, you know, reemphasize and enlighten you in what's really more important in marriage, but also if you have it right outside the lunar node, you feel like whatever 
happens in that relationship or whatever is a, a commitment and a, a basically a need for you in that relationship is also karmically just in that uh, position as well too. And then of course, also um, ascendant or descendant, you know, Juno should be in the ascendant or the descendant line. And it's, you know, it can be the other person's Juno as well as your own, but um, it can really reemphasize attraction as well too. I think it goes without saying because Juno really reemphasizes what's important in marriage. I think a partner's Juno placement Again, that's well aspected. So conjunction, trined, um, semi-sex, or actually, sorry, not semi-sextile, but conjunction, trined, or sextiled would be best um, when it comes to marriages. And it, it would be a situation where both of you are really, like the, your really inner and most subconscious commitments would be valued in each other as well, too. All right, stargazers. So here we come down to what have we learned when it comes to Am I Marriage Material Part 2? One thing that I felt that I had learned was that um, because with both episodes, the personal planets were really well showcased in this regard. And, um, personal planets, particularly being the sun, the moon and Venus, I kind of felt like I was being very exclusive with them and very, um, you know, not so, you know, not so inclusive with all the other planets. Um, and also, you know, I felt like I was very exclusive with Jupiter at times, a little bit with Mars, a little bit with Jupiter, a little bit with Mars, but it's not, it wasn't really fully inclusive of all the planets, because of that, I kind of feel like with the personal planets involved, marriage is how deep we can get by being our true personal selves. You know, it's basically that relationship where our true personal selves are really out there on the line. And it's really just how deep we can get and how, again, being that sort of relationship where we're thinking of the other person and not so much of ourselves you know, being able to be our truest selves possible and having the other person accept that as well too. And really, or seeing if that other person accepts that as well. And I mentioned too, we don't have a, the other planets to hide behind. Um, you know, it's you know basically how personal and how deep we can get because we just don't have those other planets to hide behind. So we don't have the generational plants to hide behind. We don't have Mars to hide behind. We don't have other, the other planets to really um, buffer what really is being considered when it comes to marriage. With applying versus separating, it can lead to real icebreakers when it comes to the intensity of each aspect. You know, again, um, if uh, Venus should be in an application to like say someone's moon or actually I should reverse that someone's moon should be in application to someone's Venus. Again, um, really making sure that love and affection stand the test of time would really be a great icebreaker in the relationship. And it would really, again, because those two planets would be very in an intense mode, you know, making sure that that real love and affection is really well met. 
I also think that with all other planets too, it, it would be like a really, it, it would be a really big commitment deal breaker or deal maker as well too. You know, in the case of Venus applying to Pluto, as mentioned with um, Mr. Spader's chart, that would be a really dicey situation. And again, like I said, it would, it, I think the ice breaker or the, uh, or the deal maker would be whether I could, you know, balance out and make sure I'm not tramp, you know, make sure that there's not power mongering relationship, but also that he also too balances out his power mongering tendencies in that regard. Um, you know, if both person, if both Mr. Spader and I could like balance out power mongering tendencies in order to, you know, see more transformative tendencies. And I mean, this is, of course, if we were to have a relationship, again, it's wishful thinking. But, you know, I could see where um, icebreakers or deal makers would be would be set, especially with the applying versus separating. And, you know, I uh, wanted to add that separating doesn't mean that the, you know, even though the attraction could fizzle, it doesn't mean that's doomsday. Um, I'm sure the attraction, you know, again, the attraction or the relationship could still thrive. It's just a lot of accommodations would have to be made for both people. And I think the third thing is what we value is not always obvious to us at first glance. And that to me came out from Juno, you know, just what we value in marriage and what we hold dear in marriage is just not always obvious to us not even to our own very selves. And like I said, with Juno, it was, it was just very eye-opening for me. It's like, oh, I, I'm attracted to somebody who's financially well-off. That's, that's rather interesting. But I could also see where um, somebody who's stable and who holds a stable job would be far more appealing as opposed to somebody who is unemployed. Or um, I would probably, you know, again, value making sure that somebody who maintains like a stable home life would probably be far more valued than somebody who doesn't as well, too. But again, that Juno aspect is very interesting and very worthwhile in looking into as well. Well, Stargazers, I really hope that this was a wonderfully, another wonderful, informative, fun-filled episode full of wonderful astrological facts in regards to marriage. I hope for those who are already married um, that it gives some clarity to your composite charts. For those of you who are thinking and pondering of marriage, that also gives you a little bit of clarity as well. Above all stargazers, do not be afraid to look up at the stars. Um, Actually, there are a couple planets there near the Earth. I think I've mentioned this last week, but they're still there. Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn are close to the Earth. So that's, um, I've been seeing it in, in astrobotany. I've been seeing, um, all aspects playing out in, um, you know, plants starting to perk up a little bit, even though we, in the Denver area, we've had a lot of snow. Um, there have been a lot of plants that have been, or a lot of plants that have been, um, perking up as well, too. And I feel like that's, uh, definitely Jupiter's influence. They're not blooming or growing just yet. Saturn's influence, and then of course Venus and Mars. I feel the the Martian influence is definitely thriving, surviving, perking up, and then Venus is supporting all of that. So 
all these planets that are near the earth kind of, it's really interesting like how they, how they interact with uh, plant life. But aside from getting deep as I have, you know, just feel free to look up at the stars where we can see our origins within astrology. And above all, stargazers, between this week and next week, please feel free to visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash 7th House Astrology. Um, with your uh, membership, you would help to support me very much so. And in, the, in return, you get a, a free reading either of a sinistry chart or of your personal natal chart and seeing how your romantic nature thrives really, or how your romantic nature evolves or kind of comes to being. And above all two stargazers, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out at either misek, M-I-S-E-K dot Sandra at gmail.com or at my Instagram page at Sandra.Misek. And again, that is spelled M-I-S-E-K. But above all stargazers, be well. And until between now and next week, I will see you then.